You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. So we're pleased to have Felix Rodriguez on the program today. Mr. Rodriguez is best known for the famous operation that led to the capture and the killing, not by him, but by the Bolivian uh, soldiers of Che Guevara. That was 1967. Che Guevara, of course, was famous for helping Fidel Castro in the Cuban Revolution, and he was the subject of a famous movie called The Motorcycle Diaries about his trip throughout Latin America, where he saw tremendous poverty and inequality, and he supposedly was a big thing and and motivating him to want to be a revolutionary and change injustice as he saw it. Che was originally Argentinian. But Mr. Rodriguez not only um, participated in the Che operation, he also was a decorated uh, pilot in Vietnam, helicopter pilot. He participated in the controversial Phoenix program, which was basically in a program by the U.S. to get opponents of the South Vietnamese regime. You can read about the Phoenix program. It's very controversial to this day. And also, um, he participated in the Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra was um, Reagan's, uh, President Reagan's main thrust to supply arms to the Contras, who was fighting the Sandinista government, headed by Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. The feeling was there was a triangle of communism with Cuba, Grenada, and uh, Nicaragua. And we would dismantle, uh, obviously, Grenada with the 83 invasion of Grenada, and we would dismantle uh, Nicaragua by taking out that government. And he participated in that too. Mr. Rodriguez is a, obviously a lifelong anti-communist fighter and um, was an important person in the U.S. role uh, against those uh, governments. So we're here with, um, we're pleased to have Mr. Felix Rodriguez on the program today. Um, Felix Rodriguez is the author of the book Shadow Warrior. He's the winner of the Intelligence Star for Valor. It's a rare award given by the CIA and the Silver Star by the U.S. military. Um, he also, uh, it's the third highest award for valor and service in Vietnam, and also the Gallantry Cross by the former South Vietnamese regime. So, Mr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for coming on the program today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Could you please tell me a little, little bit about your background? You are from Cuba, correct? Yes, uh, I come originally from Cuba. Uh, back in 1954, I came to this country. Uh, for 7th and 8th grade and then high school at Perky Omen Preparatory School in Pennsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, then uh, my parents went on vacation to Mexico in late 1958. I went to visit them, and we waited for New Year's Eve in Mexico. That's when Castro took over, Batista left. So I came back to school, and when I returned to visit them in Mexico, there was a captain from the Cuban Constitutional Army who was recruiting people for the first operation against Fidel Castro. I was uh, 17 years old at the time. So uh, I joined them. Uh, I actually flew into Dominican Republic in, in the 4th of July of 1959 and joined what was called the Anti-Communist Legion of the Caribbean. That was the first operation against Castro. Okay. Uh, we, we were uh, double-crossed by Major Gutierrez Menoyo, who claimed he had taken over the city of Trinidad. And the plane that went there from, from our place uh, everybody was captured at the guy who took my plane because I was supposed to be uh, on that plane. But a colonel from the police who was very close to my family and his son was going on that plane, Roberto Martin Perez, uh, told us that I was younger and his son had more experience and got me out of the helicopter to go with him later on. Now, his son spent the next 28 years in a Cuban prison. And the guy who took my place, uh, he was killed defending the plane in Trinidad. Then I came back to the United States with hepatitis. I graduated from Portiomen. I was accepted for uh, engineering at the University of Miami. But when I got to Miami in June, I found out there was something uh, going on in, in South America against Castro. So I joined that. That later became the Bay of Pig invasion. Yes, could you? That that was April 1961, the Bay of Pigs invasion. Could you please tell us what your role 
in that invasion was? Yes, I, I actually went to Guatemala for training in September of 1960. Uh, there is a lot of misconception, and people ask why was the administration gave a military landing to the CIA where they had no expertise. It belonged to the Pentagon. And the answer is that it wasn't supposed to be an invasion like it did happen. The Eisenhower administration was brief in early 60 uh, that the Cuban government was going to a different relationship with the Soviet Union, and they were planning to bring an offensive missile into the island. That's when the Eisenhower administration uh, ordered the CIA to destabilize the Castro regime. All right. Now, the first instructor that we had in Guatemala was the name, well, he used the name with Osvaldo Vallejo. Uh, he was, his real name was Colonel Napoleon Valeriano, and he had been uh, very successful in the war against the Hulk in the Philippines. He was from Filipino origin. And his idea was not an invasion. It was the support of an already existing guerrilla in the Escambray Mountain. And he was going to use our brigade in three phases. One, uh, they called the great things or the infiltration team, then the black things and the occupational force. I was part of the great team, the infiltration team, all the special forces of the brigade, actually. So we landed, we were supposed to land into Cuba to work with the resistance and bringing people into the mountain. One that was taking place, then the black team of 25 men each were going to land in the Escambray Mountain, and they had the capability of air reception, a maritime reception to receive weapons, uh, from outside and start arming that guerrilla. And once we had a strong guerrilla to be able to get a small area that Castro could not come in, then they will bring the rest of the brigade with the provisional civilian provisional government and a powerful radio station to give the news to the world that we had a government in arms who was going to create new elections within a year uh, for a democratic Cuba. Okay. Now, when the election took place and President Kennedy was elected, from there on, he takes control of the important operation in the whatever administration is at the time. So the president decided not to do that type of a plan. They took the Filipino guy out of Guatemala. They brought a colonel from the Pentagon. They disbanded the black teams and formed a really was a reinforced battalion, even though they call it a brigade. Our thing stayed the same. So we did land into Cuba uh, ahead of the invasion, a month and a half, two months before the invasion landed, to work with the resistance and prepare the condition inside. All right. So now, the first, actually, the first change that Kennedy did, which was a good one, uh, was in, in instead of the guerrilla warfare, he was going to take the city of Trinidad. The city of Trinidad had been pretty much anti-Castro. It was right close to the Escambray Mountain where the guerrillas were operating. It was close, uh, very close also to the ocean where they had the port of uh, Casilda. Uh, where they will be able to, the, the invasion didn't have to land like they did. They could have had the boat right to the pier and just disembark, you know, directly there. And they had a runway in Trinidad that could be expanded, so our B-26 could operate from there. If anything went, went wrong, it was very easy for us to join the guerrillas in the Escombride. Now, that plan was a uh, hold on until the 1st of April. Unfortunately, President Kennedy's advisor ill-advised him that it was very difficult to deny the American participation, taking over a city, there would be a lot of press in a city, and they convinced him to go to a secluded area that turned out to be the Bay of Pigs. Right, and I understand and, uh, Castro knew that area fairly well because he had gone fishing there a number of times. Yeah, but the, the, the main thing was, you know, at the time was, for us to be able to, to be successful in there, we had to control the air. Now, they planned it that way. Remember, when the brigade went down, Task Force Alpha of the United States Navy accompanied us, and they were parked right across from us, maybe four or five miles from the Bay of Pigs. They had the USS Essex uh, U.S. carrier, and all the planes of F-86 that were on the board of that uh, aircraft, they were all painted black, the insignia. They didn't say United States Air Force. And uh, they had also two submarines, four destroyers, and several landing craft with Marines on board. Unfortunately, the president got cold feet. He did not authorize the the Essex to support us. And, of course, well, the first thing that Castro did was he sank the boat that was carrying all of our ammunition, our rocket, our fuel, our radio station. And then what happened was his history after that. You know, the brigade fought bravely. They took every single position in the first 24 hours. And then the ammunition that was meant for only one day, they extended as much as they could to less than three days. And when they run out of ammunition, they did not surrender, but they tried to evade the enemies, goes into the swamp, because it's a swampy area all around Hidong, 
Some of them were able to escape by boat, and then Castro captured within the next uh, months or so. He captured like 95% of the landing force. Do you think, Mr. Rodriguez, if Kennedy had authorized the Essex to use their air power, it could have been a pretty, pretty successful operation? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. If, if he had been able to do that, even we understand that Castro had planes ready to leave, he knew that really the Marines or something were going to land in Cuba. Uh, but that didn't happen, and, you know, and that's the rest is history. You know, we lost because of that uh, inconsistency of that. Now, we had, for example, program. Uh, air strike to eliminate 100% Castro Air Force. That was one of the big mistakes of the operation. Uh, the first few days, we were able to eliminate 90% of Castro's Air Force. The last day, there, there was supposed to be a bombardment using all 16 of our B-26s to eliminate the rest of the Castro Air Force. But what happened was, during that period, they were able to shut down one of our B-26s, and the administration was claiming that the B-26s attacking the Cuban target were from the Cuban Air Force who were defecting the Cuban Air Force. Now, when this was debated at the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, who was the U.S. ambassador, was supporting that theory. Now, when the Cuban government was able to present proof that they were not planes coming from the, from Cuba, because the B-26 that we had was a little bit more modern than the one that Cuba had. The B-26 that Cuba had had a plastic nose and the machine gun were on the wings, our plane had a 50 caliber machine gun on the nose, and in the wing we have, you know, the rockets and uh, and uh, and bombs. So when he was able to prove at the United Nations that Raúl Roa, who was the Cuban ambassador, Adelaide Stevens, who was not briefed on this operation, told his administration that unless they put a stop to the airstrike, he will resign to the UN. And we have been a disaster at a point of crisis for the U.S. ambassador to resign. So they did put a stop to that airstrike who could have eliminated 100% Castro Air Force, and that's when Fidel Castro prevailed in the air, in the air and we lost. Now, Mr. Rodriguez, were you captured uh, during that up by Castro? No, I was, I was working with the resistance in Havana. I moved around the countryside. I went to, to, the, to the province of, um, of, of um, Camagüey. I went out for three days, came back by boat through Camagüey. And then when the, when the invasion was a failure, they did not advise us. Now, we had inside the country by that time enough explosive to be able to blow bridges on the way to Hiron. But we have delayed tremendously the advancement of Castro troops into the operational area. But they didn't advise us. We learned of the invasion through the Cuban radio when they started mobilizing all the, 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 the militias and everybody. I was in Havana at the time when, when this thing took place. Uh, then later on, it was impossible to do anything because very intelligently, what Castro did in every major city of Cuba, he deployed all of his military forces and surrounded house by house, block by block. And if you were a male and you were not assigned to a military unit, even though you had nothing against the regime, you, they have nothing against you, they have no record of you being against the regime, they will pick you up and put you in what we call a temporary concentration camp. In Havana, they have baseball field with high fences. They had 150 to 200,000 people in there. The Blanquita Theater had like 5,500 people in there. And what they were able to do was to completely disarticulate the internal resistance. They had a lot of our people who had, they had no idea who they had. And later on, they released them. But they were able to eliminate the possibility of all acting in support of the brigade. Now, was your code name Lazarus for surviving that, Mr. Rodriguez? Never. Uh, that name was given to me by the Cuban intelligence, the same thing like Felix Elgato. Uh, that was never uh, my name. I never used that uh, alias at all. Okay. Could I turn you um, now to uh, Bolivia and obviously the, the Che Guevara operation? How did you come to be in Bolivia? I understand the U.S. ambassador to Bolivia did not want any U.S. citizens participating in the operation. So at that time, even though you're working for the CIA— you were not a U.S. citizen, correct? That's correct. Ambassador Henderson, who was the U.S. ambassador in Bolivia, didn't want to have any plastic bag American coming back dead from South America. Remember, in Vietnam was already taking place, and there were some American advisors coming back in plastic bags from Vietnam into the United States. So he didn't want that to happen in, from South America. So they had a prohibition that any U.S. citizen could not participate in any area of combat or danger. That's why they selected, uh, in our case, the CIA selected us because we were not at that time U.S. citizens. So they had no conflict with the ambassador's uh, directive. So they came to Miami, the in, in the specific case for advising the Bolivian 
uh, armed forces there, and the unit that was being trained by the U.S. Special Forces, uh, they came to Miami and they interviewed a 16 Cuban, and they selected two of us uh, to go to to Bolivia. I later asked my, you know, the guy who came down was Larry Sternfield, and asked him why he selected me, because we all had basically the same training. And he told me what's what you told me at the end of the interview. At the end of every interview, he will tell you, if I select you, when would you be ready to be mobilized? Everybody would tell them, you know, a week or two weeks or a few days. My answer to him was, well, if I have time, I'll go to my home. I'll say goodbye to my wife and my kids. I come back and we leave. We don't have time for that. You give me the phone now. I call my wife and I tell her that we have to leave and we don't have time. Let's go. On the way, I will give you her number, and you call her and tell her that I have to leave. I guess that impressed him to the point that he selected me for that operation. Okay, so Mr. Rodriguez, so you're now selected for this, obviously, to the U.S. government, very important operation. Che Guevara is, in some ways, as important as bin Laden later became, because he's seen it as like the spark that could start off a revolution in Latin America, and a communist revolution. So could you tell me how you got about to tracking Che and getting his whereabouts? Well, we went down, then two of us... Uh, I stayed in the headquarters of the 8th Division headquarters uh, based in, in, in Santa Cruz. And then my friend stayed in, in the training camps of La Esperanza uh, with the unit, the special unit that was being trained. So I was assigned directly to the head of the division, Colonel Centeno and I, and the head of intelligence, Major Arnaldo Saucedo. So whenever they pick up any documentation from the area, I will go over with him, uh, you know, to check on the intelligence and everything. So. I knew from back uh, intelligence that we received while we were in Washington that this was this guy, Paco, whose real name was Jose Castillo Chavez, who was disaffected because he was really lying when he was recruited into the guerrilla. So at one point in time, they, we received information that Paco had been captured alive by a local unit. So I went with the mayor to, to see Paco at, at Valle Grande, where he was being held in a hospital. And, uh, and when I inter- inter- interviewed him, the guy had a tremendous memory. He would be able to recite meetings that he had several months ago and the name of 16 people and the addresses and everything. So I went to, at that time, there was a general head of the Army, David La Fuente, in, in Valle Grande. When I arrived to talk to him to get Paco, one colonel was telling him that he already interviewed Paco, that he had no contribution to it, to give him the word, and they already had told the press that he was badly wounded, which means they were going to kill him. So I interceded uh, with with the uh, general, and of course the general knew that I had documentation from the president of Bolivia and also from the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Ovando Candia, to give me all the support that I requested. So he did concede it and gave Paco to us, and Paco was instrumental in giving all the details of how Che Guevara moved in the area. Really? Whenever he moved from point A to point B, he would use what they call vanguard, center, and rear guard. So he had like five guerrillas one kilometer ahead of him. He would be in the middle with the main force and then one kilometer behind another five or six guerrilla. In case there was an ambush, it would be protected in the, in the middle. So in late September, there was a regular encounter with the Lieutenant Galindo, and they killed three members of the guerrilla, and they called us. So I went to Pucará to wait for the bodies. So when Lieutenant Galindo arrived, he told me, Mi Capitan, I saw the guerrilla in the distance. When I started preparing the ambush, they surprised me. They, they, they came up. So what happened is he saw Che Guevara's group about a kilometer behind from a hill, and when he started preparing the ambush, the vanguard was already coming up the hill. And he was able to kill three members of the vanguard. One was Coco Peredo, the head of the Bolivian guerrilla on the, on, the, uh, on the Bolivian side. The other one was Miguel, who was a captain from the Cuban army, uh, Manuel Hernández Osorio, and the other one was Mario Gutierrez Hardaya, a Bolivian doctor. And we had those names related to the vanguard. So we knew what she was in the area. So I was able to convince Colonel Centeno and Aya to deploy the battalion immediately and cut short two weeks that you still had for basic uh, graduation from the training, and they mobilized that, and on, on actually they started going to operation on the 1st of October. And then we got very lucky, really. Did, did Che have Cuban guards with him, or who was his? Who were his assistants? Were they, he was originally Argentinian, but did he have Cuban compatriots, or was he just by himself in Bolivia? No, when he went there, they went about 17, all of them together. There was like 14 Cubans, two Peruvians uh, and, 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 and Che himself. So when, when, you know, and that was one German uh, intelligence officer that was sent there to, to, you know, to supervise actually what he was doing on behalf of the Soviet Union. That didn't, see, Che had problems with the Soviet Union uh, because he was pro-Chinese. 
So actually, when you look at history, he, he was sent to Bolivia by Fidel Castro to be killed. First of all, the radio transmitter that he arrived with in Bolivia was broken, and they only gave him one. So he could not communicate back to Cuba. Okay. Mario Monge, the head of the Communist Party of Bolivia, who had been with Castro two months before uh, Che's arrival in Bolivia, met with Che on the 31st of December of 1966 and took all the support from the Communist Party from Che, to the point that he told the communists that were given to them by the Pereira brothers that if they stayed with Che, they were expelled from the Communist Party. And then Renan Montero, who was the Cuban intelligence officer who was assigned La Paz to help and support Che, who had become very well uh, entrenched in La Paz. We've even visited some of the presidential uh, parties and everything. After all of them arrived in country, was recalled back to Cuba with the pretext that his visa had expired. And we knew he had acquired the Bolivian citizenship. So there was no way the Soviets were going to support him because they knew if he was successful, it would be a revolution going toward Mao. And you know the Soviets and the Chinese hate each other traditionally all along. So Castro essentially wanted Che out because I assume he saw him as a rival and wanted him killed. Is that correct? Not necessarily as a rival. He depended on the Soviet Union, and he had no choice. The Soviet Union told him this guy cannot be successful. So he did everything possible to get him captured and killed, which did happen. Okay, so Mr. Rodriguez, now as I understand, Che is now captured. You actually, as I understand, have some respect for him, and you have some private time with Che before he's actually killed. No, when I arrived in the area, there was a soldier. That's, that's where the story come about, the Rolex. There was a soldier who had a GMT Rolex. Now, you have to understand that every single Cuban, there was 60, about 15 of them that went there, every one of them had a Rolex. All right. Okay. So when, when a lot of those people got killed, soldiers got, you know, Rolex from them. Now, the guy that I, that I had a Rolex with him when I arrived in Ligueras told me that that belonged to Che. And then I actually asked him for the Rolex, and I exchanged it for mine. I had another GMT Rolex with a different band, so I exchanged the, the, the watches. Now, later on, I learned that when Che was captured, he had two Rolex with him, one that belonged to him, and the other one belonged to a Cuban who was killed, and Che was holding to the Rolex to give it back to the family eventually. So he told Gary Prado, you know, that, that, that story. So Gary Prado kept Che Guevara's watch and the other one also. So I understand that mine is just one of, of the Rolex from other guerrillas. It was not Che Guevara's watch. Then at the very end, yes, he gave me uh, the pipe. So you do have the pipe then? Nope, <laughs> that was my mistake. I always regretted that. After, uh, let me tell you the story how this, this thing ended. Uh, my instruction from the U.S. government was to keep him alive at all costs. That, that was the instruction. Perhaps because they knew that he had this fallout with the, with the Soviet Union and with Castro. So, but there was the instruction from the Bolivian to eliminate him. When we arrived at Ligera, we didn't know what was going to happen. And when Colonel Centeno went to the operational area and I stayed working there, there was a phone call who arrived from Valle Grande. I was the one who answered the call, being the highest-ranking officer. I had the rank of captain, and there were only two lieutenants in the area. And the orders were to execute him. They had a very simple code, 500 Che, 600 dead, 700 keep him alive. So there was a decision from the president and the commander-in-chief of the armed forces to eliminate him. So when Colonel Centeno, before he left, came over, I called him aside and said, Mi Coronel, this order from your Bolivian command to eliminate the prisoner. My order from my government are to keep him alive, and we have helicopter and plane to take him to Panama for interrogation. And my name was Felix Ram. We said, Felix, we have worked empirically. We're very grateful to you. This is order from my president and my commander-in-chief. He looked at his watch and said, when I leave, the helicopter is going to come several times, bringing food and ammunition and taking our wounded and our dead. But it's going to come back at 2 o'clock to pick up Che Guevara's dead body. You can adjust this him any way you want, because we know how much harm he has done to your country. But I want your word of honor that at 2 o'clock you are going to bring me back the dead body of Che. So I said, my coronel tried to make them change their mind, but it does not change in order. I give you my word as a man that I will bring you back the dead body of Che. We embraced and he left. And sure enough, the helicopter came several times. And that's what I was lucky because one of the times the pilot of the helicopter had a camera from the chief of intelligence and came to the room where I was talking to Che and said, you know, Mayor Saucedo wanted a picture with the prisoner. So I asked Che if he would mind say no. That's when we took him out of the schoolhouse, and that's with the picture that you have seen with him and me, because I gave my camera to him. And then when I took his camera, I closed the lens because he didn't know what was going to happen. And it would be embarrassing if they said that, you know, that he died from combat wounds, and then this guy show up with picture next to Che. Uh, so, you know, that, that went that way. So I started waiting and see what, what happened. 
Uh, about 1230, there was a lady from the town who came to where I was and said, Mi Capitan, Mi Capitan, when are you going to kill him? I said, why do you say that, lady? He said, well, we saw you just being photographed with him just a few minutes ago. And look, the radio is already giving the news that he died from combat wounds. So at that point, I knew there was no reason to wait anymore. So I walked into the room. I stood in front of him, looked at him straight in the face and said, Commander, I'm sorry. I tried my best. Okay. It's order from the High Bolivian Command. He perfectly understood what I was saying. He turned white like a piece of paper, but he composed himself and said, it's better this way. I should have never been captured alive. That when he put out the pipe and said, I'd like to give this pipe to a soldier, to a soldier who treated me well. And at that point in time, Sergeant Terran, who he knew was the one executing people in the area, burst into the room. Yo quiero la pipa, mi capitán, I want the pipe. And just say, no, a ti no te la doy, I won't give it to you. So I ordered him several times to leave, which he did. And I look at Shea and say, Commander, would you give it to me? So he looked at me and said, si, a ti si te la doy. So he gave me the pipe, I put it in my pocket, and then I told him, this anything you want for your family, if I can pass it on. Then I would say in a sarcastic way, say, well, if you can't tell Fidel, he will soon see a triumphant revolution in America. Like saying, you know, you double-cross me, but this is going to be successful no matter what. And then he changed the expression, saying, if you can't tell my wife to remarry and try to be happy. Those was his last word. He approached me. We shook hands. We embraced. And he stood in attention, thinking I was going to be the one to shoot him. So I left the room. I went to, uh, to the Lieutenant Perez, who was uh, uh, Lieutenant, um, the sergeant, and then he was right next to Lieutenant Perez, Sergeant Terran. I said, look, this order from your high Bolivian command to eliminate the prison. Don't shoot from here. I'll put my hand under the, my machine uh, because he's supposed to die from combat wounds. Shoot from here down. They see me, Capitan, see me, Capitan. And then I left. I went to the advanced area where I was photographing the diary. I was uh, exactly 1 o'clock in the afternoon when I left. At 1.15, I heard the burst of fire. Then a few minutes later, Captain Gary Prado and Celso Torelli was another captain who was in the operational area. They both came, and we all went into the room. Uh, his body was facing the, the, the ceiling. Uh, it was covered with mud, probably from the floor. It was very humid. And all the time, in the back of that room, they had the dead body of two Cuban officers who had died with him. One was uh, Captain Pantoja and another Cuban officer. So in there, we embraced around the body, and Celso said, you SOB, you killed so many of my soldiers, and crossed his face with the leader, a stick that he had. And Gary Prado told me, mi capitán, we have finished with the guerrillas in Latin America. And I told him, mi capitán, we haven't finished them. At least we have delayed them for a long time. So, Mr. It was about close to 2 o'clock. You could hear the helicopter, and they left. So, Mr. is it fair to say that you both thought Che Guevara was a killer, but you also had some respect for him uh, the last time you spoke with him? You sort of had... You sort of had some respect for him, but you were glad he was dead because he was a killer of, of, of many people in Cuba and a killer himself. Oh, absolutely. The thing, you know, when I arrived there, I had with a specific thing in mind. I remember this guy who assassinated so many people, hundreds of people in La Cabana Fortress, and he took joy in actually giving the, the last shot on the head to those people. But at the same time, I remember his image of this uh, man in this uh, big uh, coat when he visited the Soviet Union, when he visited Mao in, in Peking, and now to look at what was looking in front of me, who looks like a beggar, uh, this guy was no longer the Aragon guy that I remember him from those movies and um, pictures. Uh, you know, this guy was like a beggar. He didn't even have a pair of boots, some leather attached to his floor. His uh, clothes was filthy. Uh, you know, I, as, as a human being, I felt sorry for him. And then we, we, we treated each other with respect all the time. It's different, you know, if you talk to the Cuban people in Miami, they say that he pleaded, that he cried. It's not true. If you talk to the Cubans from Cuba, they say that he was arrogant. He told me, I, wouldn't, I don't talk to traitors. Uh, he spitted me. That didn't happen either. He didn't even know who I was until halfway into the conversation when he looked at me and said, you are not Bolivian. I said, who do you think I am? He said, well, you may be a Puerto Rican or a Cuban. And by the question you have been asking me, you are working for the United States Intelligence Service. So, but we have, like I said, you know, mutual respect for each other. But he definitely, definitely he was uh, an assassin. Then at the end of all of that, you know, I had the pipe and sergeant. I already took all the ashes from inside the pipe, which I kept in, in a litter in my pocket, in a litter, uh, putting in, in some uh, paper that I had, I, I crossed. And then uh, Sergeant Taranka said, Mi Capitan, Mi Capitan, I want the pipe. I deserve it. I killed him. Uh, so I, inside, I thought, why should I have complied with his request, you know? Uh, it was my mistake. I say, I gave the pipe to the sergeant and say, para que te acuerdes de tu hazaña, so you remember you're dead. He took the pipe, lowered his head, and he left. And I should have kept the pipe. Mr. Rodriguez, if Che had not been killed in 67, how big a threat do you think he was 
as uh, to Latin America as far as communism spreading? Was he? Do you think he was a very dangerous threat? Well, I think he will continue to go somewhere else. He knew that he had no place in Cuba. Uh, he got a complete fallout uh, with Castro. Uh, later on, we learn why. In 1963, Che went to a trip to Algiers. On the way back to Cuba, he stopped in Cairo, where they had a reception for him at the Cuban embassy. He was the, the Soviet ambassador was there. And they started a discussion, ideological uh, discussion between the two of them. And they actually had a fifth fight between him and the, and the Russian and the Soviet ambassador. So we knew that he was condemned from there on uh, to his, uh, you know, that like he would have no support from the Cuban government at all because Cuba depended on the Soviet Union. All right. So he probably would have gone to another place. Maybe he would not have been successful, but there would be a lot of other dead people, uh, you know, in other places if he had to stay alive. So, so, Mr. Rodriguez, let me turn you to Vietnam now. You obviously, I think you become a U.S. citizen 1969. I believe you flew over 300 uh, missions and the helicopter missions in uh, Vietnam. Uh, first of all, when did you learn to fly helicopters? In Vietnam. Actually, when I was, I was assigned in Vietnam after Bolivia. Well, after Bolivia, that was 1967. In 68, I went briefly to Ecuador, trained intelligence unit for the presidency. And then I moved to Peru for the 48th Comandancia Guardia Civil, who was a paratrooper anti-guerrilla unit. That's what I was assigned to and as an advisor when the military group of Velasco Alvarado against the constitutional president Belaun the Terry took place. So I was in there during that time. And then from there, when I came back to the United States, uh, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. So I arrived there in, in actually in February or March of 1970, and I stayed there until 1972. My responsibility was for the, a unit that the CIA managed called the PRU, Provincial Reconnaissance Unit. And we have military units in every single, uh, in, in every region, in every single province. So Region 3 was all the 11 provinces around Saigon, so I had 11 units to advise in that area. I worked with them all the time. I went into a lot of operations with them, flying with, uh, with the Hughes 500 helicopter, low, low level to identify the gorilla, to fire, you know. And the pilot told me, look, if I get badly wounded and you don't know how to fly this, we will both get killed. So he taught me, you know, on, during the operation how to fly the helicopter and how to land it. That's how I learned how to fly the helicopter in there. You became an expert in low flying over jungles, correct? And you're also involved in the Phoenix program um, in marking people within the villages to be taken out. Is that right? Well, it, it was intelligence operation. You know, a lot of people depressed. They, it really doesn't have a right the way this thing operated. For example, I give you one one example of one operation uh, quickly. Uh, we had a, a, a source who identified like 15 intelligence cadre in area near Gushi Tunnel, okay? And gave us the name of all of these 15 people. So what we did was we got the dossier from her and built a dossier on every one of these intelligence cadre from the Viet Cong. And then one day we went there with a bunch of helicopters, we surrounded all the villages and put all them in one, one area. And we had the source in another helicopter, a female source. And then we took them, put all together in there. I took like 15 pictures with a Polaroid camera, brought it to her, and she would identify these 15 people. There were only about 12 of them in there. So I identified these 12 people. So I, we put a little round of about, you know, one, every one of those uh, Polaroid camera and gave it to the PRU intelligence officer who, you know, had more intelligence on that specific individual. So they would pull aside, they were interrogated, and then you develop, you know, on-site uh, target that we operate in there, uh, you know, to be able to capture and, el and eliminate it. So it worked out very well in the, during those uh, at the time, that type of operation. Yes, just just for the audience's sake, the tunnels of Coochie are about an hour from Saigon. I've actually been to those tunnels, and they said the light at the end of the tunnel was usually a VC with a candle. I think that was a, what the Americans, the American expression. The Phoenix program, I believe, was a program the U.S. initiated. Some people said assassinate uh, enemies of the United States. Other people said um, take out in a military way people enemies of the regime. What was your opinion of the Phoenix program? And it was a controversial program, obviously, that you were involved in. Well, the Phoenix program in general was called the, what they call the pacification of Vietnam. And it was trying to eliminate the cadres, intelligence cadres. That's our mission with the PRU, to eliminate the, the, they were doing terrorist attack in Saigon, for example, bombing of the hotel. That's a lot of those people. We, we went into operation with my PRU in the Cushy Tunnel. Let me tell you, the Cushy Tunnel sometimes were in, in the middle of, of a town in a, in a, in a uh, bushy area. And it was very hard to get to the entrance of the tunnel because they have very heavily booby traps. So what I did was I airlifted on the Hughes 500, a couple of soldiers at a time, and just dropped them at the entrance of the tunnel itself. 
And we found inside of those tunnels, for example, a lot of documentation of the attack that they were doing against the hotel and putting bombs inside and all of that. So we tried to eliminate the infrastructure of the Viet Cong. For example, one of the missions that I was successful, I was one of the cross of gallantry with Star from the Forest Star Vietnamese General War to stop the rocketing of Saigon. And they were rocketing Saigon just about on a regular basis every week with 1.22 Soviet rocket. They had a sub-region 4 unit commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Tutang from the Viet Cong, and he would just move yes every single week across the river and fire at random 122 rocket into into the Saigon city, trying to point to the American embassy and to the presidential palace, which they never hit. But it was it was the psychological scene to say that with 500,000 troops in country, the United States could not stop the rocketing of Saigon. So I was able to to get intelligence from from uh, our people in there, uh, especially we were not looking in area because the high tide was very high, and we learned from one of our sources that was captured. What they were doing, they were using five 55-gallon drums, one on top of the other shoulder, and when the water tide went up, they would stay on top of that. So we started looking into that area, and especially on December the 4th of 1970, we were able to have a big firefight against Tutan and his group. We got three PRU killed. They had like 15 killed, including Tutan. And from that day on, they could not put a single rock into Saigon until it left in April of 1972. Mr. It was very successful. Very good. What was your opinion of the South Vietnamese uh, forces? Basically, the, the opinion of most people in the United States is that there were a lot of desertion, there was a lot of corruption, and that essentially North Vietnam was fighting a regime uh, f- that they considered a foreign-backed regime, sort of like how they considered the Chinese an outside regime, and then later on the French. Well, I, I had very little relationship and knowledge of the Army, the Republic of Vietnam Regular Army. My unit, the PRU, were recruited most of them were formerly Viet Cong and Shuhoi, people who have defected. And they were extremely effective because a lot of time we, we captured one, one Viet Cong and one of our people from our unit knew him or had worked with him in the past. That's why they were so, so effective. Uh, we were probably the most effective unit against the, the Viet Cong infrastructure in the whole country. Because we have this running every single region of, of Vietnam. And it was a unit, we were allegedly, our PRU were on the national police. But there was no control of the national police. It was controlled by the agency. We provided them with intelligence. We provided them with the helicopter capability from the U.S. Armed Forces. We never used Vietnamese helicopter uh, of any kind. We used the U.S. helicopters uh, to support them. And that's why it was very, our unit was very, very extremely effective. We didn't have that problem at all with the PRU. And the rest, I really have no relationship uh, working with the Army, the Republic of Vietnam Regular Army. Okay. Mr. Reddy, let me turn you to um, the Iran-Contra affair. And obviously, after Vietnam, you get involved in a, a particular priority of President Reagan, which was aiding the people fighting the Ortega-Sandinista government in Nicaragua, the people that had replaced the U.S.-backed dictator Somoza, which was an important thing for Reagan because he considered um, the Communist Triangle of Grenada, um, Nicaragua, and um, a threat to the United States. What, what was your role in, with the Contras, please? That came coincidental, really. Uh, after Vietnam, I went and had a tour with my family in Argentina. I was requested by name by a general who had visited us in Vietnam. And then after Argentina, election took place and Campra took over, and, and my general was retired, came back to the United States. And then I retired from the agency in 76. So in the 80s, when I thought that the helicopter concept that I developed in Vietnam would be helpful in El Salvador, that's where I volunteered to go there. I never went to El Salvador for the for the Nicaraguan resistance. I just went there to implement my helicopter concept. We was very successful in there. Now, while I was in El Salvador, uh, Colonel Norris had a problem that he had uh, the the Honduran close for a period of time uh, getting any planes inside for an incident that they brought some television crew in one of the planes to Palmerola uh, Air Base. And then he asked me for assistance because he had a plane full of weapons uh, from Southern Air up in, in Portugal. And he, you know, was costing him. He could not bring it to Honduras. So he knew I had been very successful in El Salvador and had an excellent relationship with the Salvadorian military. So he asked me for uh, assistance if I could get uh, the, the Salvadorian government to accept uh, this weapon and storage and then temporarily on, until he could solve the problem with Honduras. So I went to the head of the Air Force, I got the consentment, he sent me to go to the Minister of Defense, Vides Casano, I talked to him, we all agree. So that's how I got coincidentally involved with the Iran-Contra thing. So we started receiving weapons and planes from them. Of course, you have to understand 
to the Salvadorian if he was to the Rabbanis to support Nicaraguan resistance, because all the weapons that they were receiving were coming through from Cuba to Nicaragua and from Nicaragua to El Salvador. That's how I got involved in the Iran-Contra thing. And then it became a big political thing because the, you know, because the, uh, my, my connection with the vice president office who helped me to go to El Salvador, because my boss, Don Gregg, who was my boss in Vietnam, was then the national security advisor to Vice President Bush. And he knew how effective my helicopter concept was in Vietnam. That's why he helped me uh, to be able to go to El Salvador to implement the concept. Like I said, in the first operation in El Salvador, we captured Nidia Diaz, the commander of PRTC, and her unit was the one who assassinated our Marines at the Zona Rosas in El Salvador, San Salvador. What, what was your opinion of the fighting force of the Contras? I mean, people have, have said it wasn't a particularly effective fighting force. Did you think they were a pretty good fighting force? Oh, yes. I think they were very, very, very effective fighting force. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of young kids fighting with them. I had a lot of respect for them in the field. You did. And you you got to know uh, George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., when he was at, was he, did you get to know when he was at the CIA, or how did you come to know George Bush Sr.? No, that's, I, I, that's another thing that I laugh at. A lot of people say that my relationship with Bush goes back uh, my time when he was at the CIA. Actually, when I retired from the CIA, I was awarded the Intelligence Star for Valor from the CIA. And he was supposed to be the one to give it to me because he was then the director. And I refused to get the medal from him because he was the first political appointee. Before George W. Bush, every single director of the CIA was, came from the ranks. He was the first political appointee. So when they told me I had to go to Washington to receive it from him, I refused. I said I wanted to, to get it from a professional. And it was my, my, my mistake, because let me tell you, uh, George Bush's father was one of the most effective CIA directors the agency had, because he went along uh, with the people who knew. He was very cooperative. He worked with them very well together. And they, all of them, respect him so much that they gave the name uh, of, of that uh, building of ours in there to, in his name uh, after uh, all of this year. So I never met him during that time. They had then some old uh, high-ranking CIA official to come to Miami to award me the Intelligence Star for Valor at my home here in Miami because I refused to get it from George W. Bush. Now, later on, uh, from George Bush. Then later on, when I visited Don Gregg at the White House, I think it was in the, in, in, in the early 1985, that's when, when my, my friend uh, Don Gregg brought me to meet the vice president, which I met like three or four times. You didn't particularly like Oliver North. I heard you say on 60 Minutes. Is, is that correct? The person who was sort of well, in charge? It was not that I didn't like him. I was uh, unhappy with him because he had uh, he allowed General Secor to run a lot of the things. Uh, I think he meant well, but he got General Secor, who was, in my opinion, he was corrupt. He was making a lot of money out of the Contra, and that's where we had a clash, you know, because I disagreed with him working that closely with uh, General Secor. Uh, after you work with, obviously, the, helping the Contras, do you then stay in Central America and help El Salvador fighting rebels, or do you come back to the U.S.? Or what's your next step after that? No, no. After, after um, you know, when the when the plane went down in Nicaragua after the the, uh, the big earthquake in El Salvador, I had to come here and testify. Actually, I testified on the 27th, 28th of May, 1987, in front of Congress. I was the only one who went there without a lawyer and without immunity. But at the same time, I continued to fly with the Salvadorian Air Force. So I went back and forth. You know, I had to come testify of the position, and then I went back to El Salvador to fly the helicopter concept against the guerrillas in there. Actually, I flew all together until 1988. In 1988, I flew like 298 missions with the Salvadorian Air Force in medevacs, in in raids, in support support of troops and everything during that time. Were you flying... Who were you working with, Mr. Rodriguez, when you were doing that with El Salvador? I was an independent. I just uh, offered my service uh, for free. Actually, when I met General Bustillo, the head of the Air Force in, in uh, Bowling Air Force Base in Washington, and I presented him my concept, uh, he said, fine, I am willing to you know, to try it, but there's a problem. I cannot pay you. I said, look, you don't have to pay me. I have my retirement for the agency. The only thing I need is a place to stay and that you allow me to work with your, your, your uh, Air Force. And that's what we did. At the, at, at the very beginning, let me tell you, he got me like a 10-foot ball. Uh, I, 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 I had the feeling that he didn't like me at all at the beginning. <clears throat> now, later on, after we captured Nidia Diaz and the operation became extremely successful, he confessed to me that why was because he could not understand that somebody would risk his life for no pay. 
So he was convinced that I was being paid by the United States intelligence to try to find out if they were involved in their squad. And then he realized that was not the case. I was only trying to help them, which I did. And we became very, very close. As a, as a matter of fact, whenever the U.S. ambassador wanted to talk to General Bustillo, he had to call me and he would ask me to go with him in every meeting with the U.S. ambassador in El Salvador. So, Mr. Rodriguez, after you did that, you volunteered your time in the late 80s. By the 1990s, is your operation days pretty much over and you've, you're no longer doing that in the 1990s? Yeah, I just came back to the United States, and now what I do is I go to a lot of uh, military bases to give conference of my experience. I have been to the National War College. I have been to Inter-America Defense Board in Washington. Uh, I recently gave several speeches in different times to MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command in Camp Lejeune. Uh, I have gone to the Fort Bragg, uh, to the 3rd uh, Special Forces Unit, uh, Eglin Air Force Base to the 7th Special Forces Unit, I just recently came from California to give a speech at the, at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. I am a regular speaker, a member of the of faculty of the uh, Special Operations University in Tampa at McDill Air Force Base, which I have to go, by the way, now uh, to give another speech on the 29th of January. Okay, and Mr. Rodriguez, just what is your opinion, just taking it to today, of the Castro regime? Obviously, Fidel Castro was dead. His brother, Raul Castro, took over. Obama extended diplomatic relations, and Trump is sort of bringing that back. What is your opinion on Cuba today and what U.S. policy should be there? It should be the policy of really pushing them, using, especially now that they have a lot of economical need, pushing them to a, for a democracy. What Obama did in 1914, 2014, was really, to, it's unbelievable. At the time that the regime was really suffering, you could have really pushed them to do changes in their what well, he did give gave them everything in exchange for nothing. Every single opposition people inside Cuba tells you that that day that he started that relationship with Cuba, Raul Castro and Fidel Castro implemented more restriction and more they hit more the resistance. They they were attacked more than any 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 other time uh, during that time. What he did was uh, actually to maintain the Castro regime by giving them the incentive of money that they needed with nothing in exchange. And they said. They are not going to change. They are not going to uh, to provide any any democratic election. It's the same thing. So the Obama's policy was the most disaster one that I have ever seen. And I hope that this administration will push stronger now that they are economically they are hurting more because Venezuela is not able to support as they were doing it to Cuba. And then it's the time to push them. You want a democracy? Then we will help them. If not, and they won't be able to sustain the the economical situation they have without foreign help. Is there any difference in your mind between Raul and Fidel Castro, besides maybe Fidel being more charismatic? I mean, are they both equally as bad in your mind? Uh, they're both equally bad, and, and Raul is even more, uh, I would say, the criminal than Fidel. He himself personally uh, conducted a lot of assassination and execution when he was in the, in the Sierra Maestra. Uh, and there is going to be no change. This BS that you're talking about that is going to leave power... Uh, nothing is going to happen because he will continue to be the head of the Communist Party of the Central Committee, and that's the one who really controls. This guy, Lopez Canel, whatever, he will just be a figurehead, but the one will be, Raul will still be um, handling everything from behind. He will still be in total control of the country. If you had to guess, I mean, do you have any idea what the Castro's popularity is in Cuba as far as the population, if there were a free vote? Would you say there is some hardcore support of like 10 or 15 percent or higher or lower than that? I don't think that we have much more than 10 percent of the Cuban population. But the thing is, they live in fear. Uh, if you do anything, you know, they're putting in prison. If you, you, if, even if you put a comic uh, making fun of one of them, that's enough to be able to put you for several years in prison. So people are afraid, and their only alternative is try to leave the country, unfortunately. Uh, and, and they are afraid, you know, in election. Uh, they only have one candidate, and they're afraid they have been told that they have ways to know if you vote against them. So everybody's afraid to, you know, to, to vote uh, against the, them because there is really a not transparent election whatsoever in, in, during the Cuban uh, uh, elections. Yes, it's uh, so you don't think. Did, did you uh, did you read the book by Fidel Castro's bodyguard that talked about his lavish lifestyle and the island he used to go to to go fishing and the the, the Mercedes and the wood panel helicopters? 
No, but I, I know the guy before he died. I knew him personally. I had many, many meetings with him. I've been in my home, and we have talked about that. And it's, it's amazing, you know, everything that, that this guy uh, had. And the Cuban people is dying from, from hunger. And he claimed that he doesn't have any money. He's one of the richest, in the Forbes uh, report, he's one of the richest men in the world. Yes. Uh, that they amazed. And do you think? Do you think his brother lives that way too, very lavishly as well? Oh yeah, they they all have everything you know that that anybody could have. Maybe he's not. Uh, he doesn't go in, in like if he likes to go fishing outside and all of that at the time that he could do it. And he had all of this. He had like a hundred and some houses all over Cuba. And Raúl does the same. They all have in every single province. They have different houses, fully equipped that they can arrive anytime there with security and everything. Uh, of course, no lack of, uh, of of food at all. On the contrary, uh, the best wine and the best food is, is today. They don't have to go and make lines to buy it. You know, they, the 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 party will send it to them uh, on a regular basis. It's, it's, they 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 live like like millionaires. Mr. Rodriguez, when you look back upon your life, uh, you've been involved in something like a hundred different operations. What is the operation between Vietnam, the Contras, obviously getting Che? What is the operation that that you're most proud of as your legacy and that fills you with the most satisfaction? I only think it was Vietnam, to be honest with you, because uh, when I was able to stop the rocketing of the boat going to Saigon, I stopped the rocketing of the city of Saigon, that was a big accomplishment. They they have been trying to do for a long time. I was able to comply with it. Uh, for stopping the rocketing of the boat going to Saigon, I received the the, um, the Naval Medal of Honor from the Vietnamese uh, Navy. Then altogether in the other operation, I received uh, one gold star, what they call Cross of Gallantry with gold star one. I have call of, of Cross of Gallantry with silver star two, and Cross of Gallantry with bronze star six of them. And, uh, and you know, I was very proud of, of what I was able to accomplish in Vietnam. Now, Che Guevara operation, of course, have become, you know, the most uh, significant one because of the figure of Che. But I believe they have done a lot of things more in, in, important than, than, than the capture of Che Guevara. Well, um, Mr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Obviously, thank you very much for your service, and you're a decorated uh, war veteran. We appreciate that, of course. It's a pleasure being with you, Ralph. Thank you for tuning in to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. There are past programs there. And thank you so much for your time today.